Romans, and of course, this, this, the byline on this uh, series is called Exposed, the Shocking Truth of the Gospel. I hope to shock you at least a little bit every single week. So remember, we did all that last week and ended with one verse. So we had a tremendous message and, and actually got to Romans 1.1. So I'm just going to incorporate Romans 1.1 as a review, and we're going to go down through the first seven verses of the chapter, okay? So Father, we thank you today. We thank you for what you've already done. What a wonderful time of worship. God bless our choir and our band and our vocalists and musicians, Lord. They're so committed, and we just thank you that we are absolutely spoiled, rotten in this church because we have phenomenal worship every time we come in. And Lord, thank you, and thank you for the word today. And Holy Spirit, lead and guide us, be our teacher, take us into some amazing stuff today, and we trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So here we go, uh, Romans 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That's kind of where we worked ourselves to last week. Um, Verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Remember how Jesus joined up with the two dejected disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible says that he was amazed that they were clueless about what had just happened. So he opened the Scriptures and started in Moses and the prophets and revealed himself to them. And I'll get to that a little bit later, but just remember that. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So Jesus naturally, actually, if you read the genealogies through his mother and his adoptive father, both of them were in the lineage of David. So naturally, his lineage was lined up with the throne of David, according to, 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 to prophecy as well. Um, And declared to be the Son of God, verse 4, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We're going to come back to that one. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Somebody say, He's talking to me. And verse 7 says, To all who are in Rome, Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember last week we said that this writing, this book of Romans, um, is the most extensive exposition of Paul's theology. In fact, the theology and the doctrine of the New Testament anywhere in Scripture. So this is what we have here. We have this writing that shows us every part and portion of the gospel. We got a cheering session up here. We do have a mother's room in the back, that, right there through that window. So if you need to, you can go back there. Um, and so we have this writing from Paul, and he's laying this out. Now, let me say, I think I might have misled some of you or confused some of you, but he is not writing the book of Romans from prison. He is writing this book in anticipation of visiting there once he finishes what he's doing in Jerusalem and so forth. So here he is sort of setting the stage before he gets to Rome with this particular uh, writing. So that's where we sort of jump in today. Now let me ask you a question. Which Jesus do you trust? Which Jesus do you believe in? Is it the baby that was born in a manger? That's cool, but not good enough. Was it the Jesus that was a good man? Because I'm telling you, when when little Eric goes to college, and when any of you go to work, 
You're going to have people begin to try to debate you and say, well, you know, Jesus was just a good man, and he was. But being a good man is not good enough. Was it the Jesus that, uh, that cared for sinners and never, you know, never uh, shamed anybody? Well, that's good, but not good enough. Was it the Jesus that came from heaven and walked on the earth? Awesome, but not good enough. This may shock some of you, and I hope it does. Was it the Jesus that died on Calvary's cross? Is that the one you believe in and invest your life in and debate and argue over? That's awesome, but not good enough. Because a dead Jesus didn't save anybody. It wasn't until he walked out of an empty tomb on the third morning that everything changed. Now, notice what he says here in uh, verse number four. Talking about Jesus, son of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by, I wish I could circle that word. Let's, let's put verse 4 up there. By the resurrection from the dead. Everything we know to be our reality as new creations in Christ had nothing to do with Jesus dying and had everything to do with Jesus being resurrected from the dead. That's why I don't care for a crucifix that's got Jesus nailed to the cross. Not that I'm religious about it, and, and, and if that's your gig, then so be it. He had to die before he could be resurrected, right? Paul even said, I don't, I've determined within myself at Corinth not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But if you read Paul's writings, which we'll read some of that today, he always finished the, the, the message with the resurrection of Jesus. And so his leaning was always that direction. In other words, what Paul's saying is, listen, we could talk about this and that. We could talk about, uh, you know, how you got off drugs because of AA. Or we could talk about how you just stopped doing this or you stopped doing that. Or how well you manage your anger or manage your anxiety or manage your sin. He said, that's great. We can talk about that. But I'm always going to just go to the side of the resurrected Savior. Because that's the one that transformed our life, and our future. That's the one that caused everything to change. Amen? In Romans 4.25, the Bible says, He was delivered over to death for our sin and raised to life for our justification. When He walked out of that empty tomb, then it was possible for you and I to be transformed. It was, it was possible for us to be made new. It was possible now for us to walk like him, with him, never separated from him. Isn't that wonderful? Because the, the enemy will always try to get you off on these side tangents about, well, you know, Jesus did this and did that. And all that's great. You can, you can preach that and you can apply those things. But I'm telling you, not until he was resurrected did anything really have the potential to change. So I want to just hit very quickly... Uh, four things, uh, and we'll see if we get to the fourth one. I think I'll probably just make it three. So three things that happen because of the resurrection. Three things that are reality now for us because of the resurrection. Number one, eternal life. Somebody say eternal life. That now is possible because of the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to give you four verses there, 17 through 20. 
It says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. See, like I said, everybody will want to argue, well, Jesus was a good man, but. Well, Jesus was a prophet, but. Listen, what people have to do is get their butts out of the way and recognize that if Jesus wasn't resurrected, you don't have any hope. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you and I are going to spend eternity in hell. So when somebody tries to get you off on their idea of religion, what you need to do is just always default back in your own heart, whether you argue or not. I quit arguing about Jesus a long time ago because it's not my job to convince everybody. And it's not my job or mandate to go defend the gospel. I know a lot of people say, man, you know, I'm studying apologetics. I want to defend the gospel. Well, you know, the Bible tells me that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't see nobody having to defend a lion. Just let him out of the cage. He'll take care of himself. Why don't you just start living the reality of the resurrected Savior? And people will know there's a difference. People can see the tangibility of the transformation in our lives and then begin to recognize you don't have to say anything. They'll come ask you. Hey, what is going on with you, man? What is different about you? Uh, you know, Jesus was good, man, and I, and I like that. I kind of incorporate a little Jesus in with my Buddhism or into my Islam or into my, you know, David Koresh stuff or whatever it is that people get into now, uh, you know, and, and that's not what this is at all. We always go back. The difference between us and them is a resurrected king. That is it. You, that's, the, that's the totality of the theology you need to understand, in a sense, if we get down to the lowest common denominator there is, we have a resurrected Savior, and nobody else does. They say there's more secular historical proof that Jesus raised from the dead than there is secular historical proof, proof that Julius Caesar was an emperor in Rome. Now, I know we teach one in school and we don't teach the other, but it don't matter what the curriculum says. It don't matter what the core says. What matters is what God said, and the truth of it is there's more proof that Jesus walked out of an empty tomb than anything else on earth that people get PhDs in. And I ain't talking about a Pentecostal hairdo. (laughs) Even though those have their place, I suppose. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, in Christ have perished. If, in other words, if he isn't raised from the dead. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit. Somebody say first fruit of those who have fallen asleep or have died. So the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many brethren. That, the first fruit represents all that will come after. And that's what happened. Uh, if we look at the seven feasts of Israel, the morning Jesus was resurrected, that is a fulfillment of the feast of first fruits. So the, uh, the high priest was in the temple waving the grain offering at the very moment Jesus walked out of that tomb. He was the fulfillment of the first fruits. Uh, feast that they had celebrated for 1500 years as a type and a shadow and if you remember our study on the uh, convocations and 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 the feast and those uh, hebrew words it means dress rehearsal 
So they had had a dress rehearsal for 1,500 years. And then Jesus on, uh, on, on Thursday night, Thursday afternoon, I know I hate to mess up your tradition here, but on Thursday afternoon, because in the week of Passover, uh, there's a ceremonial Sabbath that happens before the Sabbath which would be Friday, and of course Friday begins Thursday night. So on Thursday sundown, Jesus died. Woo! Aren't you glad that, that uh, we can know something about Scripture and don't have to just watch Charlie Brown to find out everything, right? So on Thursday night, he became the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, fulfilling the feast of Passover that they had practiced for 1,500 years. And then the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they would uh, practice uh, gathering up all the leaven, which is a type of sin, and wrapping that leaven in linen and go out in the backyard with the kids and all the relatives and they'd bury it in the ground as a type of doing away with sin. And on that day, Jesus, as sundown happened and evening came, they took him off the cross and they wrapped that sin in linen. And they buried him in the ground in fulfillment of the dress rehearsal that had happened for 1,500 years. And then three days later, on the day of first fruits, on the Feast of First Fruits that they had practiced every year for 1,500 years, the priests began to wave the grain offering to represent the harvest that would come. But it wasn't about grain and wheat and, 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 and barley. It was about a living Savior walking out of a tomb. And on that day, specifically, he fulfilled. That feast, that dress rehearsal, and so he is the firstborn of many brethren. Man, that's powerful stuff. Preach myself happy. Whew. We ought to just run and eat before second service. So that's the first thing, eternal life. You know, that's really, I think, I think the end, and I've been kind of flirting with this whole revelation thing, I think it's going to be different than we were taught all these years. But there's something still to those feasts. Because the Bible says in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Holy Spirit fell. And, and those are the first four that I just laid out for you then. And they've all been fulfilled by Jesus. There's three that haven't been fulfilled yet. Feast of Trumpets, Feast of the Day of Atonement, and, uh, and Feast of Tabernacles that all happened in the fall. And so however the end times may be different than what we thought... I'm telling you, those feasts are going to play into that because he fulfilled all of those on the day and those other three have yet to be fulfilled and they have to do with the marriage of the lamb or the, convoca- uh, the coronation of the king. They have to do with the repentance of Israel and they have to do with celebrating freedom as far as the tabernacles go. And, and Zechariah 14 tells us that in the millennial reign, we will still celebrate the tabernacles, you know, for those thousand years. It's the only feast that we observe in the, in the millennial reign according to Zechariah. So anyway, a lot of cool stuff in the Bible if you just uh, read it. Number two, Jesus lives in us. Let me say that again. Jesus, as a result of the resurrection, lives in us. He doesn't live next door to us. He doesn't walk with us. He doesn't walk beside us. He doesn't Uh, You know, we don't serve next to him. We don't serve under him. We don't do any of that. He is in us. 
Romans 8, 11, and we'll get, of course, to this later in, in the study, but I want to throw this in. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, you think about everything you've ever learned about Jesus, and you think about Uh, every other belief system, and nobody has a teaching that says Muhammad lives in every Muslim or Buddha lives in every Buddhist. Looked like a few people were living inside Buddha. (laughs) Right? Jerry Jones does not live in every Cowboys fan. Who would have known? But Jesus lives in us it's a differential that only happened because he was resurrected from the dead his spirit dwells in us because he rose from the dead it's a powerful truth and nobody else can claim that Uh, this is not on the overhead but in galatians 2 20 paul said it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me This is a radical departure from religion. We're not talking about religion right here. We're talking about the reality of the resurrection. Once you believe Jesus is your Savior, He lives in you. Um, Paul sensed this within himself. He wasn't sensing an influence. He wasn't sensing a philosophy. He wasn't sensing, you know, some other uh, esoteric thing. He recognized the fact that Christ was in him. In fact, isn't that what the Scripture says? The mystery of this whole thing is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And remember, the Bible hope isn't, man, I hope it doesn't rain. I just washed my car yesterday. Bible hope is an earnest expectation, meaning you get up in the morning and I'm telling you today is the day. Today is the day that God's going to break out in my life. I have an expectation. It means that we expect God to do what he said he was going to do based on his word, not based on what we hope in the, in the, in the Americanized version of hope, right? Because, you know, it's like love. That word hope has kind of been dumbed down. You know, we love cheeseburgers. We love whatever. But love is something different than that in God's perspective. And so when we start talking about hope, it's different. So we have an expectation now that God is going to do what he said. And that's called faith, by the way. And when we walk in faith because the just shall live by it, then that allows his word to happen in our life. So Christ is happening to the believer. We are happening to the world because he's happening to us. This is a symbiotic relationship that nobody understands that don't have Jesus as their savior because they want to argue about, well, uh, should Christians get tattoos or not? I love reading those kind of articles nowadays with my new perspectives. Because they always try to, they can't say you can't do it, but they'll tell you 15 reasons why you shouldn't. Because, well, this, and then because, well, that. And you know what? All that's just a bunch of garbage religion. You are free. Paul said all things are lawful for me, although not all things are beneficial. Guess who has to make that decision? Not the guy writing the article, but you. So people say, well, you know, you preach grace and it releases everybody from responsibility. Oh, no, actually, it puts more on you. 
Because it is your free will to ruin every relationship in your life, even though God forgave you before you committed the sin. I'm not sure you understand that. I, I, you know, I, I just, I've been reading a lot, and it just, every time I come across something, I don't know about you, but it's, it's taking me longer to read these days. Because I'm a highlighter. A circular, uh, you know, I circle. I got to go back and read it again because I'm from Mississippi. Will might not have graduated, but I'm from Mississippi, and we're a proud uh, owner of number 49 or 50 in education in America for, you know, since 1776. I'm proud of it. (laughs) And so I read it again, and I'm finding I can't get out of these 10 pages. Because to think that in the midst of your worst day, In the midst of your most egregious action, God loves you the most. In that moment, let me me clarify. When you're doing something that you knew you shouldn't have done before you did it, and you decided to do it, and in that, God loves you completely. That'll, That'll mess with you, man. That will mess with you. Ezra, you know, now lives with me. He's my favorite person other than my wife. And he knows he's not supposed to throw food. And he'll pick up the food and he'll throw it. And before he throws it, he's forgiven. You understand what I mean? I'm not mad at him. He could throw everything against the wall. I could care less. He's completely loved by the father or the grandfather in this case. You know, you just get different with your grandkids. It's totally different. I would have wore my kids out. We get patriotic at my house. We lay on the stripes till they see the stars and everybody loves Jesus after. But with the grandson, that's not, it's no longer necessary. You understand what I mean? It's just not necessary to do that. Your, your parenting skills get so much more refined, I, I think, as you get older. <laughs> So let me read to you in 1 John 4.15. John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This is not on the overhead. I got you some free stuff today. But God abides in us. This is an amazing truth that you need to understand. There's more of him in there than you. I wish he didn't like ice cream so much personally. But, you know, at least we can blame it on him. Let me give you one more verse that's not on the overhead. I don't think this is. Colossians 1.27. I mentioned this earlier, but this is the message Bible. Listen to this. Sometimes the message just says it more like we can understand it, right? If you try to read it, it'll take you 10 years to get through a chapter because it's so verbose. But it's very clear in some ways. And so Colossians 1.27 says, The mystery, in a nutshell, is just this. Christ is in you. And nobody else can make that claim. Can they be influenced? Can they be inspired? Can they be directed? Absolutely. But occupied? Mm-mm. Can't happen. That's us as a result of the resurrection. Number three, and lastly, living hope. We have a living hope because of the resurrection. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. Everything we know that has to do with life and godliness and salvation and healing and restoration and all these things are ours because of the resurrection. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. He knew what he was talking about. Nobody else did. Everybody was confused. But he understood that when he left through the doorway of death, he was coming back again in three days. And do you know how he knew? Listen to this now. This is good. Because the Father said it before the foundation of the world. So guess what he had because of it? And and a, a living hope and earnest expectation. Guess what we could call that also? Faith in the Father's word. He had never died before. He had never taken on flesh before. He was, his flesh was like yours and mine. He did not want to get nailed to a tree. That's what he was tripping on in the garden. He knew he was going to do it. But his flesh was crying out, this is going to hurt. Anybody ever been whipped with a switch that's over 40? You know what I'm talking about. Just the sound of the switch was intimidating. And your flesh would revolt against that thought of being hit with that thing. And my mom yielded. She's not very big, but she yielded a switch with the precision of a surgeon. (laughs) Right? And so Jesus, now listen to this. Jesus was able to submit to that word because he trusted it. And let me just say this. We see it from hindsight now, right? But he didn't. He he laid down divinity and took on humanity and he trusted the word of the Father. Guess what you and I get an opportunity to do today? To trust the word of the Father. To step out in our earnest expectation that God loves us more than we can imagine, that He's got a plan for us that's better than we could have planned ourselves, and that His, His care for us is non, non-ending. It is never-ending. His hand is outstretched. He is dwelling in us. He is symbiotic with us, and He's walking through us, and all we have to do is rest. Our biggest fight is not the devil, because he's defeated. Our biggest fight is that temptation to get out of rest, right? Because we feel like, well, if this was important to me, I should be doing more. You ever had that thought? Yeah, you should be doing more, doing more resting in Him, doing more time in the Word to renew your mind, to settle your spirit. Talked to a young lady last night, she's got her degree, sent out, you know, 15 resumes, hasn't heard anything from anybody, and she's freaking out. I know a man that sent out a thousand one time and got nothing. And this man had built a a business worth $60 million. And you know what I told him? That's supernatural, man. God's trying to get your attention. I told her last night, you need to rest. Statistics are one in ten. Anytime you start breaking statistics like that, God's trying to tell you something. And somebody gave me a word recently that I gave to her. Remember how Moses' mom hit him in the bulrushes? I said, maybe God's got you hit in the bulrushes to, to protect you from something that's coming first. Because right now, you're going to jump on anything that, that moves. And he doesn't want you to take the wrong thing. So he's going to hide you for his own timing. So just rest in that. You know what Moses did when he was hit in the bulrushes? 
laid there and rested. He was a baby. He couldn't do anything else. Had he been older, he might have tried to paddle upstream. Got out of God's position. Because remember what happened. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river, draws him out, sees him. Miriam had followed the basket down. And Miriam, Moses' sister, said, hey, you want me to find you a nurse for that baby? And Pharaoh's daughter said, of course. So she goes and gets her mother, Moses' mother. So she got to nurse that baby for four years and get paid on top of it. So God's doing something. All we have to do is rest. God's got a plan. Who would have thought? Think of how she must have felt. I'm having a baby and now the rule is all these male babies get killed. Man, she could have felt sorry for herself. She could have written a book about how, you know, victimized she had been and how much the system was against her. She could have sat around and cried and bemoaned and just wallowed in self-pity. But she trusted God with her baby and guess what? She got paid to take care of her baby and then God put him in a position to change the world. I'm telling you, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. You know, we talk a lot about turning from sin in the church today. And I mean church generally. And turning from sin, you know, it just sort of becomes a catchphrase. Well, you need to turn from sin. Well, it's not turning from sin that's so important. It's what you're turning to that matters. The Pharisees turn from sin every day. Our ability to manage our temptation is not overcoming. It's bondage. You know, I met with a guy last week that's dealing with sexual uh, issues in his life. And, you know, he's reading a book, bless God, and I've got it on my shelf too. And all it is is a manual. It's a playbook of how to resist temptation. When you get to that place, you are going to fail. Because this ain't about you managing your temptation. This is about you resting in who you are in Jesus to the point where you're thinking, you don't know who you're talking to, son. I'm a child of the king. I ain't going there. You ain't got nothing for me over there. And it's not managing your craving. It's being absolutely free to be who God called you to be. Because guess what? He's living in us. When you start talking about resurrection power, it's the same power that God has put inside of us through His Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life, will quicken, the King James says, will cause to live abundantly. That's the power that's in us. So we've got to reprogram this whole notion of turning from sin, and we just need to run into Jesus. That's the key. And when you do that, whether sin or good stuff that maybe not be considered sin, that's going to be a distraction. I was talking to Will the other day, and he had an opportunity to go to the Philippines, all expenses paid, so he could come down and sing at these crusades and do rap and hip-hop and stuff, and he wanted to go. Because he's got a, a he, you know, he's been there five or six times over the years, and um, I didn't tell him he couldn't go because I want to I want to be led too. So I said, "Listen, Will, you just got to pray." You know, no, he didn't like to hear that. By the way, <laughs> hey, this ain't on me; it's on you. You pray about it. Because here's the thing: every opportunity that we all have, it's either direction or it's distraction. And so he went and prayed, and I just assumed, you know. Because he's, he's, you know, he's 25 or 26, but he's a kid as far as I'm concerned. I just told my wife, I said, well, Will's going to be gone to the Philippines for a couple of weeks in a few months. And so he comes in that night and he goes, they're talking and he had already decided not to go. And I didn't even know that. 
I said, well, why aren't you going? He goes, I don't know. I just sensed in my heart that, that it was more, at this point in my life, a little bit more of a distraction. I said, okay, awesome. So isn't that wonderful to see your kids working through those things, making those decisions, and that night, was it not that night, that unanimous phone call came? And it was unanimous, was it not? And they said, we're going to fly you and Amanda to Liberty Studios in, uh, in Nashville and start laying down these tracks for this worship album. See, God's got you in the bull rushes sometimes. In the same, yeah, the same time frame that, that the trip was. So here's the point. We serve a resurrected Savior, and we see it in Paul's writing that everything that has happened in our life that has transformed us is a direct result because of the resurrection from the dead of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Let's give the Lord a shout today. Amen.